Let me encourage you, if you do have a, a paper or an electronic Bible with you, read through in your own Bible as well. Alternatively, it's in the order you have before you. We have two readings this morning. The first taken from the Old Testament, Psalm 115. Starting at verse 1. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, nose, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. All you Israelites, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear him, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. The Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless his people Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, small and great alike. May the Lord cause you to flourish, both you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to the human race. It is not the dead who praise the Lord, those who go down to the place of silence. It is we who extol the Lord, both now and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Our second Bible reading is taken from the first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by the Lord, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you, not simply with word, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen.
today we look at something quite exciting. The oldest surviving account of what it was to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now there are two kinds of writing in the New Testament, basically. Gospels and letters or epistles. The Gospels are accounts of Jesus' life and teaching. The letters or epistles are communications from early Christian leaders to various Christian communities that arose when this Jesus was proclaimed in the, around the Mediterranean world. Now here's the thing. Although the Gospels describe what happened before the letters, scholars are convinced that most of the letters were written before the Gospels were. So the letters are first. And 1 Thessalonians is one of the very earliest of them. Scholars date it in the late, late in the year 50. That is, not two decades after the events of the Gospel. It's like if we today were they, them, you know, and the death and resurrection of our Lord would have happened in the year 2001. That's how close it was. It could well be the earliest of Paul's letters, possibly the second, even of the whole New Testament. We don't, we don't exactly know. The other two contenders are James and Galatians. They're up there in the, in, in, in the circle. What we do have, however, is the earliest surviving account of a functioning Christian community that exists. So we're going right back as far as you can go. Opens like this. Paul, Silas and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. And this morning we're going to ask the question, how did this church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ come into being? What was it like for them? And can they teach anything to us who are not two but nearly 199 decades after the events of the gospel? Let me set the scene. Page two of your order of service, a little map there. Paul is writing from the southern city of Corinth to his, in Achaia, to his readers in the flourishing provincial capital of Macedonia, Thessalonica. Paul had visited Thessalonica some weeks, maybe months or so before. He proclaimed Christ there and as a result found that the very first Christian community in that big city. But after only a couple of weeks, three weeks, maybe a bit more, he'd been forced to abandon them due to violent opposition. And so he headed down south, ending up finally in Corinth. And as you'll hear more fully in a, in a later sermon, uh, Paul was very, very anxious about those he was forced to leave behind. Would they survive? Was it all for nothing? It, it, it got him so upset he eventually sent one of his team back up to find out what had happened and the team member returned with the great news they're all right despite everything the fragile brand new christian community are still flourishing and hanging in there and now paul is writing back to them the first letter to the thessalonians one big phew or thank god in written form it opens with a warm prayer of thanksgiving to God for them as he remembers them in his prayers. In fact, strictly speaking, the first three chapters, as we now call them, are probably all part of the one 
lengthy thanksgiving. Verse 2, we always thank God for all of you continually mentioning you in our prayers. And my text today, which is just chapter 1, is part of that. Now, I, I want to approach this chapter slightly back to front. I want to start with the last paragraph, then to the second last paragraph, then the third, read, like read it up the page, if you don't mind. You'll see why in just a minute. So let's pick it up at verse 8, where Paul, we find Paul writing to them in full happiness at how well things had gone when he'd first evangelized them. The Thessalonians' faith has become a talking point among the other scattered communities. The Lord's me he writes, The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia, that's the north, and Achaia, that's the south. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we need not say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell us how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. There is the earliest, if not the earliest accounts ever written of what it was to respond to Christ. And it's very straightforward, summarised in simply three words, turn, serve, wait. They turned to serve and to wait. You turned from to God from idols, <coughs> excuse me, to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. They turned their whole lives around to serve and wait. That's the whole Christian life in one phrase. Of course, it is an oversimplification and there's a lot left out. And most importantly, we must not forget the fact that this is a description of what becoming a Christian meant for what we might call pagan Greeks back in the first century. The word pagan is actually a word that wasn't used then, it was used by later Christians to describe such people, but we'll, we'll, we'll use it in an anachronistic way today, pagan Greeks. We're in a very different situation to them, as, as we'll see in just a moment. So the question is, is there something in their response which can be of helpful to us as we seek to live lives of deeper discipleship. Can we learn from them? I think we can, as you'll see. Interestingly, we don't know very much about them, but we do know at least two of their names. In the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 20, we're told that Paul, much later on, went on a very important journey from the Greek area back to Jerusalem with a group of others with him, and amongst them, represented from churches, there were two from Thessalonica. One, Aristarchus, which is a Greek name. The other, Secundus, a Latin name. Probably two of the very first converts. There they are. So, we, what can you teach us, Secundus and Aristarchus? The fundamental thing was that they turned the Thessalonians had turned to God from what Paul calls idols. Now, we mustn't underestimate the massive change that these words are pointing to. The, way, the very way Paul writes it is somewhat understates the difficulty of what's involved. I mean, who wouldn't want to turn to God from idols? It seems obvious. Before Paul came to Thessalonica, Secundus and Aristarchus would not have even said they were serving idols. 
They would have said, they were, if this is to quote a contemporary, genuine quote, they were simply upholding the beliefs about the immortal gods which have come down to us from our ancestors and the rites and ceremonies and duties of religion, end of quote. You see, Secundus Aristarchus, indeed almost everybody in the civilised world believed that life was influenced by numerous divine beings and gods. The main exception were the Jews, and they were weird. There was Zeus, the father of the gods, Hester, the goddess of earth, hearth and home, Apollo, the god of order, um, Artemis, the goddess of wisdom, uh, his sister uh, sorry, Athena, the goddess of wisdom, Hermes, the goddess of travel, Aphrodite, the goddess of love, Dionysius, the god of wine and intoxication, and so on and so forth. Asclepius, the dog of heal, god of healing. And all other various local deities and, go and goddesses and goddesses and spirits. And these immortal beings were given sacrifices, offerings and prayers as a normal part of life. In fact, that's the way you kept the world ordered. That's the way you ordered your life and secured protection for yourself and for your city and for the world. Go to any town centre in first century Greece and you'd find temples and shrines everywhere. Go to a home and you'd find a shrine to a household deity. A very, in our language, religious word. And that is what Secundus and Aristarchus and the Thessalonians had turned from. Now, why does Paul call them idols? Well, firstly, because all these deities and immortal beings, so-called, were related to, mostly, by means of statues of the gods in temples and shrines. You treated the statue as the god. There were scores of them. And also, I think even more importantly, all these immortal beings were considered as part of the world order, not its creator. It's very important to understand this. It's a very important point. These deities, not just many, they are immortal creatures of time and space. They were within, you want to say, part of the universe, if you want to say that. They had a special part of the universe, but they were in the universe. It was all part of the one order. They ordered this part. They weren't creators of the world. For Secundus and Aristarchus, the sacred, they use that language, was within this world order. Very important. You may think, I'll come back to why that's important at the end of, of my remarks. But the sacred was part of this world order. And for Secundus and Aristarchus, this was just normal and customary. It was the way things were for civilised Greeks. Then came that Jewish teacher, Paul, with words about the one true God who had made everything that is. In fact, I'm sure the very phrase in verse 9 echoes Paul's teaching. Paul writes, you, you turned to serve a living and true God. The God of whom Paul spoke was living and not dead, was true and not a lie, not an illusion. He was the living and true God. The religion of the Greeks and the Romans was based on a massive error. It was false. It was dead. It was the kind of thing that Paul would later on describe in Romans chapter 1, verse 25. He makes a comment about the religion of his time in general, in these terms, I quote, 
they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. That's the essence of why Paul calls them idols. But now, a whole way of life and thinking, gone. A whole new way, begun. It must have been massive to turn from this to serve a living and true God. Aristarchus and Secundus weren't just adding a few more fits to their real life. They weren't even just changing their religion. But a profound change in how they lived, how they saw the world around them, how they saw their community, how they fitted in. A massive change about what they understood God to be. A, not as part of the world, not, but transcendent overall. Uncreated. They turned. But why? And, and why now? Well, there was something else in Paul's announcement that explains why now. It's caught in the other thing they turned to. They turned to serve, but also they turned to wait. To wait for what? You turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. The other thing in Paul's announcement that made all the difference was the news of the resurrection of Jesus. That God had raised his son from the dead. It would have been a bombshell of an announcement. And it was only the beginning. This raised Jesus would come to put God's world right and bring the wrath of God upon idolaters. If you try and re-engineer Paul's message from the description of what the Thessalonians did, you can kind of do that. What they did, what, what would Paul have told them to make them do that? You actually get something very like what the Acts of the Apostles says Paul spoke about to the pagans in Athens, which, by the way, was on the way to Corinth from Thessalonica, so there could be something in that. In Acts 17, we're told that Paul, when he got to Athens, um, began by critiquing the, the Athenians' foolishness in thinking that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human skill and design. Instead, he announced that the one true God who made the world and everything in it is the one who is Lord of heaven and earth. But then Paul added this, verse 30 of chapter 17, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now... He commands all people everywhere to repent. You think, why? Why the change? Why the rush? Paul gives the answer. Verse 31 of chapter 17 of Acts. For he set a day when he would judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. That's the kind of news that shook Secundus and Aristarchus' world to the foundation and to which they turned. God had given notice, the living and true God had given notice to the world by raising his son from the dead. It's time now to change. There was one thing else that Paul mentioned to Thessalonians that is not mentioned in Acts, possibly because Acts, Paul is cut off the moment he mentions resurrection. Most of his hearers laugh him off. That'd be stupid. But 
in the Thessalonian response, we realised that there was something else about Jesus they believed. The resurrected Jesus was appointed to judge the world, but also he's the one who will rescue those who transfer their loyalty to him. You turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Those who transfer their loyalty to this risen Jesus, as they turn to serve the living and true God, he will come not to be the judge of their foolishness in the past, but to rescue them from the road judgment which God is bringing upon his world. That's what made all the difference. That announcement. Now, there are three other things in there, in there, in there I want to talk about briefly in their response that helps it fill out the picture as we move up, up the page. This turning, this massive turning, was done in the face of violent, painful opposition. And yet, they did it with joy, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that remarkable? Verse, four, verse 6 and 7. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering, with joy given by the Holy Spirit. So you became a model to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Like Jesus, they didn't know they were imitating him, but like Jesus and Paul, they received this word, a word of God, as we'll find out in chapter 2, not just a word from human beings, a word about God and a word from God. With joy in the midst of severe suffering, because the Holy Spirit had filled them with joy. Remarkable. By the way, they, well may they have been opposed, by the way, well may they have been opposed. For what happened here in Thessalonica is the first step in the complete overthrow of the pagan universe of the Greco-Roman world. Right? And those who, if, they, if that's why they, those who oppose them, you're exactly, something very, very big was happening underneath them. It's as though Paul's gospel, the gospel of the New Testament, is like a great depth charge under the foundations of the Greco-Roman world. And it will take a while for the, for the wave to find their way through, but ultimately it will bring the whole thing crashing down upon itself, as it does. Immense implications of this step. Even today, it reverberates through the Western world, Western civilization. Is whether you're a believer or think the whole thing's a lot of rubbish, you can't help it. You've been influenced by this revolution. That's how you think about it. You think the world naturally is like this, the same as Aristarchus and Secundus thought the world naturally like different because of the effects of this revolution that Paul brought about. Well may have been opposed. Unfortunately, they're opposing God and therefore it didn't work. So joy in the midst of severe opposition. Secondly, going up the page a bit further to verses 4 and 5, Secundus and Aristarchus and the others in Thessalonica turned to God for themselves. But they didn't turn by themselves. They turned to God for themselves, but not by themselves. For God was at work among, in the lives of those whom he'd chosen. Look how Paul puts it in verse 4 and 5. He says, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. You think, how do you know that? Because our gospel came to you not only with words, but with power and the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. When they heard the words 
that Paul announced to them, they didn't just hear them as any old message. They found that the words that Paul spoke to them had power with those words. With those words came the power of the Holy Spirit with those words. And with those, those words produced in the hearers deep conviction. They were blown away what they, what, what they heard and they believed. For God was at work. They turned for themselves but not by themselves. So firstly, in severe persecution, they had joy. By the work of God, they heard this astounding revolutionary message and they had deep conviction. And lastly, they waited energetically. Now, don't be misled by the phrase to wait for his son from heaven. You think, hmm. sure, look, the Christian life can be described as waiting. That's a, true def that's a true description of being a Christian believer. Waiting for the arrival and presence of Jesus. But when you hear the word waiting, you may have thought it sounds rather boring. Like waiting for a bus or waiting in traffic. Waiting for his son for heaven is nothing like that as we'll hear later on in the series. It's getting ready now for the presence and arrival of Jesus. It's very energetic, not a passive matter. And you see this in verse 3, where Paul gives thanks for the active response of these Thessalonian believers. We remember before God and, and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Very active, energetic lives of Christ-focused purpose and virtue. That's what they were... Look, before I imagined they're living their ordinary, I don't know what, humdrum North Greek life. But now, it's all changed. Now, the faith, hope and love produced by this gospel had moved Secundus, Aristarchus and the others to live profoundly differently. We'll hear more of this as the sermon series progresses. But in chapter 4, verse 1, for example, Paul reminds them that, and I quote, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you to do this in the Lord Jesus, to do this more and more. They were given a life project when they turned to serve the living and true God. And the life project was to live to please God. That is now what their lives were about. My purpose in my life is, is to live now to please God. And that changed everything. Hardly passive waiting. Active. Change. Development of virtue. Development of character. Development of activity. A life dedicated. And that's what was involved in the first century when you heard the gospel. You turned to God from idols from idols to serve a living and true God, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now, one last and crucial thing. That is what would be involved in turning to God from idols in the first century Greco-Roman world. None of us live in a world remotely like Secundus and Aristarchus's world. Because of the revolution I just described, our world is very different. Or, or, or is it really? Sure, we don't have the immortal gods or goddesses. We don't care for them. 
we care nothing for Zeus, Hester, or Apollo, or the like. But I'm convinced that in a deep sense, our world still is pagan. Pagan in the sense that, as a society, we locate the sacred in the present order. Now, just like they did, not in the living and true God. Now, by the sacred, I've got a rather particular definition in mind. Look at page two again of the, of, of the handout, and here's a quote from the Christian sociologist J.A. Walter. I've given it to you because you may want to take it home and think about it further, it's that kind of quote. He says, the sacred is or represents an object of worship of ultimate worth to which people are committed and which forms their ultimate concern. Whatever you're, whatever you're committed to, forms your concern, that is the sacred, says Walter. Secondly, the sacred is a source of absolute meaning it provides the believers with a validated place in the scheme of things. The sacred is what gives you a validated place in the scheme of things that makes your world make sense to you. And my point is, in our world, our society, that sacred, in many different forms, often hidden from us, is located in this world. In other words, equivalent to idolatry, we we'll call it that. And I'll try and give an example, it's hard to get it because there's so many, but often the things which are falsely sacred for us are good things, by the way. I'm not saying that they're all bad things. For example, Walter, in his book, talks about the human house and home. Once we're home, that's, there's the place, there's my place in the world, I'm secure here. And that's probably still true for us Aussies. He, he was Englishman writing. Or it could be your family, I mean, or your work, or your achievements. And I tell you what, in Australia, you want to find what the sacred is, see what blows up when you touch it. Right? For example, two weeks' time, Anzac Day. Don't you touch Anzac Day. You criticise Anzac Day, you lose your job at, at uh, SBS like that. Right? That's a sacred in our society. Or sexuality. You, you, you say for a moment that people are not free to express their sexuality and divert, you, you'll, be, you'll be off, off Twitter before, before you know it. You'll be, you'll, you'll be cancelled like that. And there are other things too. That's the sacred in our society, the things you can't touch, the things that give people meaning. And the point I'm making is, just as for Aristarchus and Secundus, they were in, in, the, in the world they lived in, the, the natural world, so for us, as a society, rather than the living and true God. Which means, therefore, dear friends, that the challenge that they faced is still the challenge we face. It hasn't gone out of date. The language is different. There's been a revolution in our society because of it. But deep down, we are still called, as they were called, to turn from idols to serve a living and true God. That's still the call that comes out today, as it did then. And yes, to wait for his son, to wait for the coming and appearing and presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom God raised from the dead, just as weird today as yesterday, then to make that claim. But he'll rescue us from the coming wrath. And so therefore I want you, as you hear these words, not merely learn from the past to admire them or look at them, but see in their turning, their joy in, joy in persecution, their deep conviction, their active waiting, a model, dear brothers and sisters, for us as well. Let's pray.
we thank you, most gracious Heavenly Father, for these, I guess they're our brothers and sisters in Christ, of whom we've been reading in the letter to Thessalonians. And our prayer, Father, is that you will be kind to us as you were to them. Turn our hearts. Give us the Holy Spirit. Enable us to lives of active waiting. In the name of him who you raised from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.